This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, ADST. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. During the Cold War, it was unusual for Americans to travel in the Soviet Union. However, in 1969, after serving as a Peace Corps volunteer in Korea, Russell Sveda decided to return home via the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Along his journey, he was met with many surprises. In the following excerpt, Sveda shares his experience meeting ethnic Koreans in Samarkand. 7% of the population of Tashkent is Korean, yeah, 7% is this, 5% is this. I said, whoa, 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 let's go back to the Koreans. I said, what are, what are they doing? And she says, uh, well, they have huge collective farms near summertime. I said, well, I'm, I'm going there my next stop. She says, why are you interested? I said, well, I just lived in Korea for two years. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, uh, still doubting this, I went to the department store in Tashkent, and in the ladies' 
garment center uh, portion of this, I saw an uh, unmistakable Korean uh, women's traditional clothing and uh, and underwear. Uh, having lived with a Korean family, I certainly knew what the stuff looked like on the line. And uh, I, I just was astonished. So I got to Samarkand, and I found out that uh, they were there too. I, I asked the guide, the guide when I came in from the airport, uh, the Koreans, where do they live? And she said, oh, they're two very large collective farms not far from here. And I said, well, I don't really know if I'll be able to get out there. She says, no, probably not, but they're also selling rice in the farmer's market. So I went down to the farmer's market, and I see this Korean Ajumani, uh, uh, auntie, an older lady, sitting on her haunches smoking a cigarette. And I went up to her, and I asked her in Korean, how much is this rice? And she answered me in Russian. And I said to her in Korean, I don't speak Russian, I speak English, I'm an American, and your language, which I call Chosanma, uh, which is the northern Korean way of referring to it. So we got into a little conversation. It turned out that she and her people were uh, from Mokpo in southern Korea, which is a southwestern port, a very, very small and rough town. And I said, well, I've been to Mokpo. And she said, no, you haven't. And I said, well, I've climbed Yudal-san, which is the mountain in the middle of the town. And she was astonished that somebody actually knew the name of this thing. And she told me this story. They had been brought as slave laborers, slave laborers to uh, Manchukuo by the Japanese in the 1930s. And in 1937, they had escaped from Manchukuo across the border into Soviet Central Asia. Stalin, noticing these people who he probably thought looked Japanese, moving into his territory, moved them as far away as he could think, which was Soviet Central Asia. And they arrived in Uzbekistan and places like that at a historically propitious moment. Uh, they were probably asked by the locals, well, what can you do? Well, we know how to grow rice. What? You know how to grow rice? It seems that the Central Asian peoples, whose main dish is rice pilaf, or they call it rice plov, P-L-O-V, uh, didn't really know how to grow rice. They had gathered it from swamps historically where they'd gotten it in trade with China or with India, but all that trade had been cut off their population was rising, they really didn't have any good supply of rice, any good steady supply. But the Koreans built these huge collective farms and uh, even colleges, uh, and some of them became quite common in the Soviet Union. Well, talking to Koreans in Korean excited the interest of the, of the Soviet authorities. So, in my next stop in Volgograd, I was uh, taken is that Volgograd? It was called Volgograd then, uh, Stalingrad. Yeah. The old Stalingrad. Uh, but as I approached, uh, as I got off the airplane, I noticed that they were uh, not the usual uh, air, uh, not the usual interest guide, usually a woman, but there was a man who spoke flawless English with her and claimed to be a journalist. And there were two other men who didn't seem to speak any language whatsoever, who were just watching him and her and just sort of hung around. 
and uh, the four of them took me on a tour of the battlefield, but also brought me to a TV studio and wanted to interrogate me <laughs> in a TV studio uh, about my attitudes toward the Vietnam War, and uh, I sensed that there was something strange. Of course, I was only about 22 years old, 23 years old. So I began to talk about the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 as uh, having been uh, just as bad, in my view, as the war that was going on then in Vietnam. They didn't seem to like this very much. As Sveda's journey continued, so did the unexpected interactions. In the following excerpt, he tells of an offer of marriage by a woman he just met, and an in-depth interview with a member of the KGB. But in my next town, which was Moscow, uh, actually nothing happened with Tbilisi and then Moscow. Uh, but I got to Leningrad after Moscow, and outside of the hermitage, a strawberry blonde woman came up to me and asked me if I was a foreigner and if I would marry her. And I asked her how she knew I was a foreigner. She said, well, you're wearing jeans. And I said, well, a lot of Soviets are wearing jeans. And she says, well, you're writing in a notebook. I said, it's a Soviet notebook. She says, well, she says, no Soviets have anything to write. So, uh, you know, why would you be writing in a notebook if you were a Soviet? You're a foreigner. Anyway, we, we piled around for about three or four days, and she became really importuning on uh, marrying me. And uh, I more or less said, no, I don't have the time to do that. I'm only going to be here for two or three days, and, and I don't have the money to come back to the Soviet Union. So my next stop, my final stop in the Soviet Union, was Kiev. I get to Kiev, I'm picked up at the uh, railroad, as usual, by an interest car. Go up to the hotel. As soon as I get into my hotel room, the phone rings. Well, who knows me it's Kiev? So, I just let the phone ring. But as the phone was ringing, and ringing and ringing and ringing, I decided that maybe I would just pick it up to stop it from ringing. There was a voice on the other end, somebody speaking very good English, asking me if uh, I would stay in my room because a reporter wished to interview me about my impressions of Kiev. And I said, well, I've only been here about a half an hour. To tell you the truth, I don't have any impressions. Why don't we talk tomorrow? Well, nevertheless, you will wait in your room, and the reporter will be there. So the reporter came in wearing a trench coat, which is summer, and probably in his mid-30s and smoking a cigarette, one of those Soviet cigarettes that stinks, and sat down and began asking me about my trip in the Soviet Union. He already knew my itinerary, of course. And he was particularly interested in my trip in Central Asia and my discussions with the Koreans there. Well, it was obvious I was being interrogated. Uh, I guess it began around four in the afternoon and by around seven in the evening. I had told him everything I could about Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. He was convinced that Peace Corps was a CIA organization. And I looked at my watch and being a young American, I said, look, I have bought coupons for dinner, and I must rush down to the restaurant because it opens at 7 and closes at 8. 
uh, or nine, whatever it was. And I said, if I don't get down there right away, I said, I won't get fed because it takes a half hour to get the lady's attention, a half hour to get uh, the food, and, and then, you know, you're lucky to do it before closing time. And he said, oh, well, no, no problem. We'll stay here in the room. He said, we'll continue talking. We'll just order up from room service. I said, wait, I can't get food in a Soviet hotel restaurant, and you're going to be ordering room service? He says, what do you think? This is a normal and modern country. So he picked up the phone. He asked me what kind of food I wanted. I figured I better make sense at this point. So I said, Ukrainian food, of course. And he said something in the phone. And about five minutes later, it came this shop, this cart, laden with food and bottles of cognac. Mm -hmm. and, and he signed it, signed for it. And then he turned to me for a tip. I said, what do you mean? He says, my child, a tip, uh, 50 kopecks is enough, which really is a minimal amount of money. And I realized that this guy was a government employee because he could sign the tab, but he couldn't put on a tip. Uh, so we, we talked about this, uh, we talked the whole evening, and then the next, then around midnight or so, he said, well, we'll continue tomorrow morning. And I said, no, we won't. He said, what do you mean, we won't? I said, because I'm going to only be in Kiev for most of tomorrow, and I really don't want to miss Kiev. He said, oh, well, I have a friend who has a car, and we could drive you around and save a lot of time. I said, fine. Well, his friend had a gray car, which was a distinctive color that was used only by the KGB. His friend uh, had a too blunt vocabulary and seemed to be interested only in driving this gray car. We sat in the back, and while we went through Kiev, it was a pleasant enough visit. He uh, asked me a lot of questions more about Peace Corps in Korea, and he showed me a book which he said proved that Peace Corps was a CIA front, and it was a book in Russian, but I could read the Cyrillic a bit, that said that Peace Corps had been expelled from Mozambique for CIA activities, and Peace Corps had been expelled from another left-leaning country in Africa for CIA activities. I said, that's ridiculous. I said, it would never work, not in this generation of, of Peace Corps volunteers, not during you know, the, the unrest on the campus. If anybody ever thought for a second that Peace Corps was being used as a spy organization or a organization right there, uh, he came back, when he came back to the hotel room, he repeated all the questions that he had asked me in the car in a kind of a summary fashion. So obviously the car wasn't bugged, but the hotel room was wired for sound. And um, then I left the Soviet Union. I went next to uh, Budapest by train. When I got there, there was this woman in the train station with a young son who was about 15 or 16. She was Romanian. She asked me if I spoke French, and I did speak French. She wanted to change money. Well, I was intensely suspicious at this point because I thought, well, I just got off the train, and I don't have a place to stay in Budapest, and here's this woman asking to change money, which I knew was illegal. But her story was that she was a Romanian dentist, and she had studied in France and desperately wanted to get her son to France to study before he reached draft age in the Romanian army because she really didn't want him to be drafted. 
and she would offer me a place to stay with some Hungarians who she was renting from, but she needed the hard currency in order to buy a railroad ticket to Vienna. And the Hungarians would only sell her or Romania the ticket if she were to give them hard currency. So I said, fine, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, the next day, or the day after actually, she met me as I went, went to the train. And she said that she decided not to get on the train because somebody had told her that the Hungarian authorities would arrest any Romanians or anybody else from the Soviet bloc who was trying to leave Hungary uh, illegally to uh, Austria. And I thought it was very, very sad, but of course very, very real, that, that people at that time could not travel the way I was traveling, really. ADST is an independent, nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. ADST's oral history collection, begun in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that helped shape foreign policy. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org. Thanks for listening.